Good morning, everybody. Good morning, moms. I'd like to read from uh, Proverbs, the last chapter of that book. A wife of noble character who can find. She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She speaks with wisdom, and faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her, saying, Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive, beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. I'd like uh, all the mothers to stand. I'd like to pray for you and thank God for you. And if you have a mom nearby, especially if you're her husband or (laughs) child, uh, feel free to take her hand. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these these women that are standing here. Thank you, Father, for this special day where we get to show our gratitude to them, to honor them, to let them know that they are very special. You have given them a very special role in the lives of so many. Father, I pray that these women standing would continue to have the strength and the grace and the wisdom as they mother, as they grandmother, as they share their lives with others. And Father, use them. Use them in a mighty way. Father, you are influencing generations through these ladies. May they stay close to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And if you would take your Bibles, uh, we are going to move on in our uh, series. Uh, I think that I want to uh, very quickly review the series, just for the sake of those of you who haven't been with us the last months. Uh, We're doing a series that's called Chapters You Should Know. And what we're doing is looking at four chapters in Scripture, and we're spending three weeks on each chapter, seeing what that chapter has to say. Each of those chapters has something we need to know, things that are very important. And so we have looked at uh, Genesis 3. We started there, and there are things there we should know, and we have learned them. Uh, Genesis 3 talks about the origin of sin, where sin came from. There was a conversation that changed everything, and we learned that in Genesis 3. We also learned uh, about uh, the source of and the beginning of things like shame and guilt and hiding and blaming and all those things. Genesis 3 tells us where those things began. It also tells us the consequences of sin coming into the world. So, very important chapter, and we spent three weeks in it. Then we moved over to John chapter 10 in the Gospels, and uh, there we looked at Jesus, always important, But especially John presents him as the good shepherd. 
the promised good shepherd. And uh, so we looked at what that chapter has to say about Jesus as our shepherd. And one of the big things that came out of that chapter is that when you know Jesus, when he is your shepherd, you are secure. That chapter is about security in a relationship with Jesus as your good shepherd. Then we moved into 1 Corinthians, and the timing was great. It was over the Easter season, because in 1 Corinthians 15, we talk about resurrection. And we talk about the resurrection body, those who belong to Christ, are going to one day experience a resurrection. Death is not the end. And we're going to receive new bodies that we will have for eternity. And so we talked about what Paul describes uh, that body to be like. But we also saw there that there was a presentation of the gospel and that um, receiving this new body that we will live in with Jesus forever is dependent upon what you did with the gospel. It's for those who have responded to the gospel and trusted Christ for salvation. And then also in the middle of that chapter is the resurrection of Jesus, which we looked at on Easter, and how if Jesus had not risen from the dead, we would not be able to rise from the dead and even receive that new body. So that chapter was all about resurrection, Christ's resurrection and ours. Today we move on to the last chapter of this series, and so you can turn to Second Peter toward the end of the New Testament. Second Peter. I'll give you a moment to find it. Uh, getting close to Revelation there. Second Peter. Let's pray. Father, uh, as we go into your word now, I pray that you would minister to us. Father, there is truth here that is so important to we who belong to you. And Father, for some here, it's going to be hard to believe, hard to accept. And yet, Lord, it is so true. And we are so thankful for what we're going to learn. Father, may you work in hearts today. May this time together make a difference in the lives of, of many of your children here. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. If you're like me, and you're not all like me, but um, if, if you have a personality that's something like mine, uh, you're kind of wired for accomplishment. Uh, what motivates you is accomplishing things. And uh, because of that, <clears throat> one of the most frustrating things for me and anybody who's like me is that there are times when you, when you start a project or you're, you're uh, seeking to accomplish something and you get started and you find out there are things missing that are going to keep you from accomplishing. Um, Maybe you find out you don't have all the materials you need. Or they didn't include any instructions. Or you lay out all the pieces that they say are there, and they're not all there. 
or you learn that you don't have the tools that are needed to accomplish this. Or they didn't even include batteries. And you are out of batteries. I don't know about you, but that frustrates me. When I want to accomplish something and something is missing, and I have to make all these runs to the hardware store or Menards. Right, Bruce? It's frustrating. And those are some of the times that I have the worst attitudes. But thank God for the times when nothing's missing. Last week, I went about trying to accomplish the project of putting together a new table saw. And when I first opened the box, I thought, oh boy, am I going to be able to do this? But thank God there was an instruction booklet telling me how to do it. It said all the pieces were there, so I checked. I got all the pieces out of the bag, laid them out. They were all there, all the pieces. They even included the tools I needed to accomplish putting that saw together. Everything was there. I was so glad. And I went about using all the stuff that they had provided, and I've got a table saw. It went together, and it works. I want to talk today, because Second Peter talks about this, something very similar to what I just shared with you. But it concerns the Christian life, and it concerns living a godly life as a Christian. And I would guess many of us struggle with that. We want to live a godly life. We want to accomplish that. And sometimes we get frustrated because it doesn't seem to be happening. Maybe you can relate to that. And an error we make when that happens is we decide something's missing. That God hasn't given something yet that would help me accomplish living a godly life. We're going to look at just four verses in Second Peter 1 today. And these are exciting truths that we're going to look at. So, uh, take your Bibles, your uh, study sheets. The chapter begins, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. So we know that the Apostle Peter is writing this letter. And... <clears throat> tells us a lot about the man when he introduced himself first as a servant of Christ and then an apostle. You know, apostle points to the authority he had that he had been given by Jesus. But he doesn't start with that. He starts by calling himself a slave to Christ, a servant. Tells a lot about the man, doesn't it? So he's writing. Peter is writing this letter. 
It's his second letter, by the way, to the same people. We see that in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. So it's the second letter to the same people. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking, to think right. So to know who he's writing to then, since it's the second letter to the same people, we go back to the first letter, aptly called First Peter. And in First Peter chapter 1, we learn who these people are that he's writing the two letters to. First Peter 1, 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout, and then there's a list of all these regions, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. In other words, Paul, uh, Peter is writing these two letters to Christians. But Christians who have been scattered all over in all these regions. And uh, if, if we were studying First Peter, we'd find out they are scattered because of persecution. They've had to leave their homes and scatter all over, and they're living in foreign places uh, because of persecution. And so when we're studying Second Peter, it's the second letter to that group of people, uh, Christians who are scattered because of persecution. And uh, he's writing a second letter to them. Another thing that's interesting, if you go to uh, the 12th or so verse of this chapter, you get some insight into timing. Verse 12 of chapter 1 of Second Peter. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. Because I know that I will soon put it aside, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. When you hear that read or follow along, what does that make you think? Peter believes he's nearing the end of his life. He is probably a prisoner, very possibly. Um, He was eventually crucified uh, upside down. That's another story. But he apparently is nearing that time. He realizes his time of departure is close. He's going to leave this body, he says. And so 2 Peter is a letter to these people just reminding them of things he wants them to know and remember when he's gone. That's the idea of Second Peter. And we're just going to look at the first chapter in these three weeks. So let me read the first four verses. That's what we'll focus on uh, this morning. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these... 
glory and goodness. He has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Peter brings three truths to these people as he begins his letter. These are three things based on later in the chapter that he wants them to remember even after he's gone. Three great truths. What are they? One, we have received a precious faith. Two, we have been given everything we need. And three, we have been given great and precious promises. Notice all three in the past tense. Already happened. Already received a precious faith. Already been given everything we need. Already been given great and precious promises. Past tense. Let's go back and look at each of those three truths. The first one is we've received a faith that's precious. And he says that it's through the righteousness of our God and Savior Christ Jesus. So through Christ, we who belong to him have received this precious faith. We've We've received this relationship, this, this standing before God. We are now in the faith as his people. And it came through his righteousness. It came through the work of Jesus. We have this precious faith. But I want you to notice a little thing he says here, which is really important. He says, you have received a faith as precious as ours. If you were to look up the, the Greek there, as precious as, it's the idea of being on equal standing. Um, the same kind. Okay. So he's saying to these people, you have received a precious faith that is on equal standing with the faith we received or of the same kind as ours. So who is the ours? Well, one possibility, a very good one, is he's referring to Peter himself and other apostles. And he's saying to these Christians, you have received through the righteousness of God, through your salvation, the same precious faith we have as apostles. No difference. It's the same salvation. It's the same. We as apostles, Peter says, haven't received a salvation that's a higher level than the one you've received. It's the same Precious faith. That would be important to hear, wouldn't it? Romans 
Ryan, you've received the same faith as Billy Graham. You like that? We could say that. Pick, pick anybody that you know of in the Christian faith that is looked up to. And remember, you have received the same precious faith as that person. Or maybe he's referring not just to himself and fellow apostles, maybe because most of the people he's writing to would probably be Gentiles. Maybe the same precious faith as ours refers to Jews, that there isn't a different precious faith that Gentiles receive in comparison to Jews. It's the same, equal standing, the same faith, the same salvation. But anyway, that's an important truth. It's important because some of you might be here today and you have been of this mindset without you even admitting it. That there's a different level of the faith for certain people from the level you have. There isn't. There's one salvation. There's one faith. And every person who through the righteousness of God and the work of Jesus that has received that faith, it's the same. It's the same. That's really important. We've received the same precious faith. And it's precious, right? It's precious. This faith that we have been brought into through Christ. The second truth that he presents is in verse 3. And this is, this is the big one. Peter says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Let me read that again. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through this relationship we have with the one who called us, we have been given everything we need for life and godliness. If you have a New Living Translation, it says something like, we've been given everything we need to live a godly life. Do you see the importance of that truth? We as Christians have received, through our knowledge of Jesus, our, our relationship with him, when he called us to salvation, we have received everything we need to live a godly life. There is nothing missing. We aren't short a piece. The instructions are there. Every tool needed is already there. All the materials are present. I mean, you, 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 you can start listing the things you believe you need 
to live a godly life. Things you need for life and godliness as a Christian. And as you list this thing, I would say to you, you got it. Then you list this thing, and I would say, you got it. Then you list this thing, and I'd say, you got it. How can I say that? Because the Bible says we have received everything. We've been given everything. Everything means everything we need for life and godliness. Everything we need to live a godly life. That is a tremendous truth that we have to get. We have to believe that. It's what the Word says. And there are many Christians who find that very difficult because they think something's missing. And that's why they can't live a godly life. And when they say they think something's missing, they point to God. Friends, on God's end, there is nothing missing. He has given you everything you need to live a godly life. That's what the Bible says. It's a tremendous truth. The third truth. Verse 4. Through these, referring back to God's glory and goodness, He has given us, again, past tense, His very great and precious promises. So, we have received a precious faith. We have been given everything we need to live a godly life. And we have received great and precious promises. What are those great and precious promises? Well, we could we could spend a whole... Uh, half hour just talking about what those promises are, listing them, the ones we are aware of. Um, The promise of eternal life, we received that. Uh, The promise of hope beyond the grave, we received that. The promise of resurrection, that new body, we've been given that. Um, The promise of the Holy Spirit living in us. The promise that the Holy Spirit would guide and and empower us. Uh, The promise of God's presence through the Holy Spirit in our lives. The promise of security. I will never leave you or forsake you. No one will pluck you out of my hand. The promise of security. I mean, we've received a lot of great precious promises. And Peter goes on to say to them, that through those promises, verse 4, you can participate in the divine nature. Now, he's not saying you can become little gods. But you can participate because of all the promises God has given in the divine nature. We aren't little gods. We're not going to become little gods, but we are new creations. And we can become more and more like Jesus. Isn't Christ's likeness a benefit of of knowing him? It's God's desire for us. 
we can actually experience some pieces of the divine nature. We can love. We can forgive. We can show compassion and mercy and grace. And we could keep going. There are things that are true of the divine nature, true of Jesus, that we can experience. We can participate in them. And it's because of these great and precious promises that are ours through salvation. But not only can we participate in the divine nature, but he goes on and says that those promises help us escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. We can escape the corruption in this world. There's a lot of corruption in this world. We can escape it. We don't have to be a part of it. Why? Because of the great and precious promises God has given us. We can participate in the divine nature. We can become like Jesus and escape a lot of that corruption. Because we are new creations. So that's a a wonderful truth. Three truths. We have received a precious faith. We have been given everything we need to live a godly life. And we have been given great And precious promises that allows us to participate in the divine nature. Be like Jesus in many ways. And help us escape the corruption in the world. Then why aren't we living godly lives? That's the question. We have this precious faith, and it's the same of the same kind, same standing as those people we think are these great Christians living godly lives. We have received the same precious faith as they did. We have been given everything we need for life and godliness, to live a godly life. And we have been given all these great and precious promises that allows us to experience the divine nature, to be like Jesus and to escape corruption that's in the world, then why aren't we? Why is it so hard? I'll tell you one reason that shouldn't be there, and that is that God hasn't given us everything yet. That's not true. What does the scripture say? He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. All the parts are there. All the pieces are there. All the materials are there. All the instructions are there. All the tools are there for living a godly life. They've already been given to us. So God can't be part of our excuse. We can't blame him, friends, if we're not living a godly life. 
everything needed is already given. You may not like to hear it, but this short passage eliminates a lot of excuses for not living a godly life as a Christian. Because we like a good selection of excuses. And sometimes it's really hard to see some of our excuses taken away. But God not giving you what you need to live a godly life, forget it. It's not an excuse. It's not valid. He has given us everything we need to live that kind of life along with all these great great promises. Uh, Jeremiah Johnson and I are doing a study together. And we're going through a book, and it's called No More Excuses. And it's kind of a hard uh, study to be doing because every time we get together, there goes another excuse. You know? Every chapter in this book, it eliminates another excuse that we would use for being the husband God wants us to be or the father God wants us to be or the man God wants us to be. And in that way, it's a hard book because it's just knocking down one excuse after another. We've had nine of them knocked down, and we still have like five or six to go. But we have a lot of excuses. I want to give you an example of excuses we use. And you have this little diagram on the bottom of your sheet. It comes from a conference I went to a number of years ago. The speaker presented this. And uh, you'll notice it's called the stronghold of exceptionism. Not exceptionalism, but exceptionism. And a stronghold is something that has a has a real strong hold on you. It holds you back, okay? Holds you down, okay? And he called this the stronghold of exceptionism. And what he means by this is one of the excuses we Christians use for living godly lives is that because of things that are true of us, and especially in our past, we are the exception. And we will say, Yes, I want to live a godly life. Yes, Second Peter 1, 3 says God has given me everything. God has given his people everything they need to live a godly life. And then there's a but. <laughs> but I'm the exception. I believe that verse, but I'm the exception. It can't be true for me. And you'll notice what he's, he's using as examples there. He talks about our past and how we think our past makes us an exception as far as living a godly life. And we'll look at things like coming from a dysfunctional family, how we repeatedly failed, um, mistakes we've made, disappointments and despair in our past. And based on those, we say, Yes, God has given his people 
everything they need for living godly, but I'm the exception. Because of my past, I can't do that. He talks about our pain. And we think of things like abuse, victimization, an illness we may have, uh, an accident we experience that had a, a great impact on us, or loss and grief. And he says we look at those things and all the pain we have and are experiencing, and we say, that makes me the exception. Yes, God has given his people everything they need for life and godliness, but I'm the exception because of all this pain I have and I am experiencing. And then he goes on and he talks about what he calls poverty, and that simply means what I don't have. And things like, I don't have any talents. I'm not very smart. I don't have the financial resources. I have no willpower. It's all the things I don't have. And based on that, I'm the exception. I believe God has given his people everything they need for life and godliness, but I'm the exception because of these things I don't have. And then he finishes with what he calls my poor self-image. And people saying, well, I, I never get affirmed. Uh, everybody rejects me. I've been betrayed so often. Uh, people have abandoned me. I, I'm, I feel unloved. And because of those things, I'm the exception. I believe God has given his people everything they need for life and godliness, but I'm the exception. So you see what the guy was saying? Only he spent a whole three days on this. But he's saying one of the excuses we use for not living a godly life and not being able to is we have this exceptionism. It's like we are the exception. It's true for everybody else. But based on these things, it can't be true for me. I'm the exception. I can't live a godly life because of these things. Can I just throw something out? To have that kind of thinking is pretty arrogant. It's pretty arrogant. Some people would look at it and say, it's humility. It's pretty arrogant to think that things that have happened in my life, things that are true of my life, and these things can all be true. Reality. But to say that those things that have happened to me, those things that are going on in my life, the way I look at my life can make me the exception of what God says is true, that's not humility. That's arrogance. That my experiences can nullify what God says. That's giving ourselves power we don't have. What does God say? You have received a precious faith. The same faith that all other believers have received. You have been given everything you need. Nothing missing. 
from God's end to live a godly life. And you have been given all these great and precious promises that God will fulfill, that he will follow through with in your life. That's what he says. Is he right? God's always right. So who or what are we going to listen to? Who or what are we going to believe? Voices out there? Voice in my head? How about if we believe what God says? And set aside this exceptionism, like we are the exception to what God says. None of us are. What Peter says here is true of every one of us who belongs to Christ. But you know, there might be something missing. And it might be the reason you're not living a godly life. There's nothing missing on God's end. He's given you everything you need to live a godly life. What could be missing are things like this. The want to. Do you really want to live a godly life? Do you really want to become more and more like Jesus? Do you really want to escape the corruption in this world? Maybe that's what's missing. Your want to. Nothing's missing on God's end. But maybe it's your want to. Maybe what's missing is right choices. That's on your end, right? It's what you choose to do with all that God has provided to live a godly life. Maybe what's missing are right choices. Maybe what's missing is consistent action. Some call that discipline. But to consistently act on the truth and use what God has already given. You know? It was wonderful that that company provided for me everything that was needed to accomplish putting that saw together. But if I didn't take action and use all that they provided, that saw would still be sitting in its box, taking up room in my garage. Maybe that's what's missing in your life as far as living a godly life. There's no consistent action. Everything God has given you is there, but you just don't take action and use it. Next week, next week we're going to talk about how to use it. That's where he goes next in this passage. Or another thing that might be missing is just good old surrender. Just good old commitment to godly living.
All that to say, if something is missing and keeping us from living a godly life, it's not on God's end. We have to stop blaming God like he has shortchanged us. That we're missing something from him. That's not true. We have to think about what is it on my end that's missing. And maybe it is the want to. If it is, you need to address that. You need to get to the point where you honestly want to live a godly life. And let God know that. Maybe it's uh, just surrender. Maybe you've never just surrendered to God and said, God, I now believe with all my heart you've given me everything I need to live a godly life. And I'm going to stop doubting that, God. And I'm going to stop blaming you that I'm not living a godly life. Thank you for giving me everything I need. I surrender. Help me use that to live a godly life. I commit myself to using the things you've already given me to live a godly life. So that's as far as we're going to go this morning. Uh, Next week, as I said, when we get into verse 5, Peter's going to talk about, okay, how do you go about using all that God has already given to you? to help you live a godly life. And uh, Peter's going to talk about how we need to become choreographers. And I'll show you what I mean by that next week. But for now, um, next week isn't going to matter at all if we don't have the want to, if we're not making the right choices, if we still believe we're missing something from God, um, if we haven't been willing to take the action and be consistent about it, if, if we haven't even surrendered and uh, um, committed ourselves to living the godly life with all that God has given us to do that. So that's what we've got to address today, right? That's where it starts. That's where Peter started, with these three great truths. So I just want you to go home and think about those three truths and ask yourself, do I really believe these three things? Do I really believe that I have received a precious faith that is just like the precious faith any other believer receives? No difference. Same salvation. Do I really believe that? I can't use as an excuse for not living a godly life this idea that there are these people who have a more precious faith than me. There aren't levels. It's the same salvation. So that's not an excuse. We have to ask ourselves, do I really believe God has given me everything I need? It's all there, already given to me, to live a godly life. Do I really believe that? Enough that I can stop blaming God for my struggle, as though he's not given me enough. 
And then I need to ask, do I really believe I've been given all these great precious promises that God will follow through with and they will help me participate in the divine nature and escape corruption in this world? Do I really believe that he's given me those promises and will fulfill them? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for um, the Apostle Peter. Father, he learned a lot in his journey to faith, his journey to become this apostle who boldly spoke truth and gave his life for it. And Father, these last words of his before his life ended here, pretty important. Father, I pray that you would do a work in some lives, even today, as we go home and really think through these three truths and whether we really believe them or not. Thank you, Father, for all that you've already given us through our relationship with Jesus and knowing him. In his name we pray. Amen.